Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, somebody I know for a long time. Perth Toll is the founder of the Freedom ETF based on an index that she helped to create using metrics designed to emphasize the economic and personal freedoms of different countries. Uh, she'll tell us how she starts with a data set uh, from various think tanks like Fraser and Cato that rank countries based on their freedom indexes and then proceeds to put them through an algorithm that she helped to create. And what you end up with is a list of some of the most innovative free emerging market countries in the world that also end up doing really well. And in fact, over the past couple of years, when you see how poorly China has done, and obviously Russia's have seen all its stocks go to zero, uh, those have not been in her funds. And so on a relative basis, her fund has done really quite splendidly. You avoid some of the worst countries in the world in an EM index. Obviously, you're going to do well. On an absolute basis, they've done well also. Just go punch in FRDM, and you could see how well the fund has done over the past couple of years. It's about $200 million in assets. It's just turned three years old and just became a five-star Morningstar-ranked mutual fund. So really quite fascinating. If you're at all interested in ETFs, emerging markets, or innovative new ways to slice and dice the world of assets, I think you're going to find this to be a fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview with Perth Toll. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is someone I've known for a long time, 
Perth Toll is the founder of the Life and Liberty Indexes. Uh, she is also the sponsor of the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets ETF. It's a first-of-its-kind strategy using personal and economic freedom metrics as key factors in driving the investing process. Perth has lived in Beijing and Hong Kong. She currently lives in Texas. Uh, and her experiences overseas is what helped lead to the Freedom and Liberty Indexes. Perth Toll, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you for having me, Barry. I've been waiting to do your podcast for a very long time, and I'm I, honored to be here. I'm, I'm thrilled. <laughs> I'm thrilled to have you. So let's start with the basic inspiration. I love the concept, and it's amazing nobody thought of this previous to you. What was the inspiration for the Life and Liberty Indexes? So the seed for the idea was planted when I went back and lived in Hong Kong after college. I was born in Beijing, and I grew up in both China and the U.S., um, going back and forth between the two countries. After college, I um, went and lived in Hong Kong for about a year, reconnecting with my dad's side of the family. And while I was there, I traveled to the mainland, to, to Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, um, and I saw things that, um, as a person who grew up in a free society mostly in my formative years, that shocked me. And I realized that my life would have been very different had I stayed in China for my entire childhood and as opposed to having come to the United States. Mm -hmm. um, so it made a difference in my life and I realized that it was freedom that made that difference. So let, let's talk a little bit about both um, personal and economic freedom. How do you use these metrics as creating an index which the ETF is based on? So the metrics that we use come from third-party think tanks, the Cato Institute and the Fraser Institute. Mm -hmm. And this keeps um, all, the, all the metrics completely quantitative and independent. So we think it's very important to have metrics that are robust, that are um, independent, and that are quantitative. And so the Cato and Fraser data set that has the human freedom metrics encompasses both personal and economic freedoms, and they rank 165 countries in the world on these 79 different metrics. Um, we take the 27 country emerging markets um, universe mm -hmm. and just look at those countries. And those scores for those countries, based on the 79 metrics, is the primary factor that goes into our country weighting. All right, so you have 27 EM countries. Yes. Uh, you're looking at the freest ones in terms of economic freedom and personal liberty. And then from that list, how do you go about selecting uh, the companies from within each country? Yeah, so let me just run down the whole process just quickly for you here. So, so first we had those 27 countries, and currently we're using the same country set as MSCI because most of our clients do benchmark to MSCI. Mm -hmm. Now, we're not bound by that, though, so in the future we may add or subtract certain um, countries from that universe. Right now it's the same as MSCI. Um, first, after we have that universe, we look at which countries are actually big enough and tradable enough to be in an ETF because this was always designed to be an ETF. So so, so you need liquidity and, and volume size. and the ability to get money in and out of the country. Yes, So, but mostly we're looking at the market cap of the country here mm -hmm. as, a, um, as a ratio to world market cap. If you don't meet our minimum ratio, then you're out even if you're very free. So this actually eliminates very free markets like Czech Republic, which is too small, um, Peru, which is not liquid enough, and it also eliminates some very unfree markets like Egypt, 
because of size. So once we have those eliminations based on market cap ratios. Uh, and, and just to clarify, yeah. when you say size, you don't mean size of the country, you mean size, size of, of the companies, the market cap relative. The market to, cap in it. the country, So yes. you don't want micro caps Correct. in your index, got yeah. it. Yeah, so we wanna keep it very liquid and very tradable. So once we have those countries eliminated, then we have about 18 countries left in the eligible universe. And these are the countries on which we apply the freedom weights. It's 100% freedom weighted. It's not a um, it's not a tilt and it's not in an overlay. And the reason why we do that is because with market capitalization weighting, which is the standard for mm -hmm. most indexes, including emerging markets, um, you end up with a lot of autocracies with this universe. So the emerging markets universe is filled with autocracies and countries just coming out of autocracies. Such as, give us some examples. Like China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So by freedom weighting instead of market cap weighting, mm -hmm. we're seeking to solve that problem of these autocracy heavy concentrations in the emerging market space. And so we created this for people who want to have that exposure to emerging markets, people who always have either a strategic allocation or just always want that emerging markets exposure. Um, but without funding autocracies. So there's no, we've never had any China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and so forth, because of freedom weighting. Not because we've you know, arbitrarily excluded any country, but it's just a natural result of that freedom weighting. So you have, you have the set of 27 countries in MSCI that gets reduced to 18 by size. Right. And, and there have gotta be thousands of potential companies within those 18 countries. Right. But no, how many wait. do you select and how do you get there? So so most important part, once we have those 18, we do freedom weight those 18 countries. As part of that process, the worst offenders are excluded. So the lowest scores are excluded out mm -hmm. of this, in this process. And the best of those 18, and typically it's between 10 and 11 countries, are included in the index. And that is a uh, completely objective process. Sure. Um, that's rules based, and I, you know, my subjective opinion doesn't factor into that at all. So now you're down to ten or eleven countries. Mm -hmm. How do you take? Uh, how many com companies do you take from each of those countries? Yeah. So we take the top ten largest, most liquid companies in each country that is not a state-owned enterprise, mm -hmm. and that's the only thing that we do on the security level. So we're just taking the largest, most liquid companies that are non-state owned. Um, and the reason why we didn't add any additional factors to that, obviously I work with a lot of um, factor people, um, and the reason why we didn't add factors to that is because we wanted to isolate the freedom factor for this product. It's our first ETF, it's mm -hmm. the first emerging markets ETF in the world that uses freedom weighting. And so we wanted to see if there was a market for this type of product and see how it would go. Um, and we're very happy with the results. Yeah, so you end up with 100 to 110 companies, more or less, and that's that's what's in the ETF. Yes, so currently there's 11 countries and there's 110 um, securities in the ETF. In the previous two years, there have been 100 securities and 10 countries, and that's why it was called the Freedom 100. And the index has been outperforming pretty dramatically over the past uh, couple of years, in part because China seemed to have imploded itself going after their own their own senior tech people. We'll talk about that later. And obviously Russia was just a debacle. You yeah. sidestepped all of those because none of those countries are in the index. Yes, and again, we don't arbitrarily exclude China or Russia. We didn't have them in there 
any of this time because of the it's a natural result of that freedom waiting. So freedom waiting in this case works very well, and it was a very effective leading indicator of some of these tail risks that investors in these cap weighted indexes experienced. And if I recall, the ETF symbol is FRDM for freedom. Is that right? Yes. Very interesting. So let's let's talk a little bit about the world of ETFs. First, why an ETF instead of a mutual fund? What was behind the thinking of going that way, especially given your background? You were at Fidelity for a long time, and they have been giant in mutual funds uh, for forever. Yeah, so so once I came back from Hong Kong, I worked at Fidelity Investments in the LA and Houston markets. Um, and I, I was at Fidelity for about 10 years as a financial advisor. And you know that's when I started noticing the trend of the the rise of indexing and the rise of ETFs and how beneficial the ETF structure was for clients. I don't know of any other investment vehicle or structure that is as beneficial tax-wise for clients. And so, um, and tradeability and, and everything. So, so I uh, was always a fan of the ETF structure. And when I created this, I always intended for it to be an ETF. Um, we created the index um, before there was an ETF, but we, I always intended, you know, it was always designed to be an ETF. Right. The, um, the old joke was if mutual funds were invented today, they wouldn't be able to get approved because they're so inefficient. <laughs> they trade at the end of the day, and you end up paying taxes on other people who sold as opposed to you yeah. paying taxes when you sell the holding. As I mean, the to- trading at the end of the day is not as big of a problem because most of our investors are long-term, but mm-hmm. um, that tax efficiency is just so hard to beat in any other type of vehicle. So who are your investors? Do you have any idea who owns the ETF? So right now, um, we have about 200 million under assets, and so it's just beginning to be big enough to get noticed by institutions. So we're getting more institutional requests at this time. We just had um, a family office re- demand that we get approved on Morgan Stanley, and they just approved us. Oh, that's great. Um, so we've been approved on a lot more platforms lately because of the size, um, and also the three-year track record and the five-star Morningstar rating. Now, um, also, that's one of my questions for yeah. later, but since you brought it up, you just got a five-star rating on Morningstar. <laughs> I mean, this was last month. I should have let you bring up. that up. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, I was. It's coming up later, but since you mentioned it, we might as well talk it about now. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, and you know what? Morningstar ratings come and go, and right. I um, that was a surprise to me because, well, I guess it wasn't a surprise. It's not it, like you apply yeah. for it, right? No, it you, just happens. Yeah. And at three years, uh, 36 full months, and uh, it's based on performance, so I guess it wasn't that much of a surprise. But, um, you know, what I really appreciate about that is that I, I didn't expect this this uh, strategy to play out, um, the thesis to play out this well, this quickly. And for <laughs> it to have done that in this exact three-year period of time, when the morning stars come out, um, just all the stars had to align for that to happen. No and, pun and intended. We, yeah, and we <laughs> all know how hard it is to get five-star Morningstar rating. Yeah. And so for us to have that right out of the gate, um, I'm, I'm very grateful for that, and I don't take much credit because a lot of that is stuff out of my control. You know, We can't control the market. So, um, so or that's, geopolitics, yeah. or who's going to invade what country, exactly. or all these things. Sometimes you know, it doesn't hurt to be smart, but being lucky goes a long way. Yeah, I mean, I think we were set up well just because freedom waiting, obviously, uh, is the reason why we didn't have any China or any Russia, and that that helped us tremendously and our investors to avoid that risk. So, so here's the question, and uh, pardon my naivete, 
But the fund has been doing really well. Mm -hmm. Geopolitical events have worked out perfectly um, uh, for, for the Freedom ETF. But go back in any decade in history, and there are very similar bad actions by bad uh, actors, autocrats, uh, dictators, all sorts of, of um, other folks. The question, and I don't know if there's an answer to this, the question I want to ask is, how come nobody ever thought of this? I mean, <laughs> it's one of those ideas that in hindsight is like, oh, of course, you pull out the worst players in the geopolitical world, of course your performance is going to be better. Has anyone ever explored this idea before? Have you know what? I would think so. Um, actually, you know my friend Rob Arnott, who is an, uh, one of our investors and uh, I, first I investor. I do recall, I think I introduced you. You know what? You always say that, but on but your podcast, true. I'm going to say I met him on the seaplane. That's right. <laughs> flying into flying into Kotak. That's yes. exactly right. So, I do remember So that. when I left Fidelity and I started doing this very slowly, I called research affiliates and I was like, hey, you know, you guys do non-cap weighted indexing. We, we want to do non-cap weighted indexing. Do you want to work together? And they were like, no, please go away. <laughs> couldn't, get, couldn't get past the first gatekeeper. Um, and then when I went to Camp Kotak. And Camp Kotak, it's because I was on a panel with David Kotak, BlackRock, and Morningstar for a, a CFA Society's um, forecast panel um, uh -huh. that first year. I had no idea what I was doing at the time. And afterwards, you know, David invited me to this camp and I was like, what is this? It's like 50 economists that go fishing in the woods next to Canada for three days with no Wi-Fi. And actually my friend <laughs> said, you should go because Barry Ritholtz goes to that camp. Get out of here. Yeah, it was Christian Magoon at Amplify who said, Barry Ritholtz goes to that camp, you should go and you can meet Barry. And so you are partly responsible for me going that year. That's um, very funny. In more than one reason. And you're also responsible for Rob going that year because he lost the bet to oh, you. Geez, and he right. had to, pay, he went to pay that bet. He doesn't go every year. You know, you know, he hasn't been back since. And before that, he was there maybe five to seven years prior. He took advantage of me. I was very, very drunk <laughs> when, he, when he said, let's make a bet. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it was an out-of-body experience. I watched my right hand sh go up and shake his hands, and the back of my brain was, what the hell are you doing, you idiot? That's a lot of money. And, yeah. and he decides to show up with a brick of cash. It was a brick of cash. It wasn't he even a check. Yeah. It's like, whack. It's pretty, pretty hilarious. So, yeah, so that's a, a funny coincidence. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So I vaguely remember introducing you to Rob out on that deck, not realizing you guys flew in together. Yes, we flew in on the on the seaplane because I called the seaplane company the day I was coming in. And I was like, I'm coming in from LaGuardia today. Is it too late to get a seaplane? And they said, no, you can share with Rob or not. Here's his flight number, just go intercept him at the airport. And I did, and I was just like, like that. yeah, I was like, hey, did they tell you we're gonna be riding together? And uh, and that's how we met, he heard the idea. Um, he Wait, you pitched great. him on the plane I with did. all that? It's <laughs> loud and buzzy, and you're literally you have those headphones. 500 feet over the swamp, yep. you see moose <laughs> and stuff running around? I believe he asked what I do, so. <laughs> oh, okay, so it wasn't yeah. out of left field. Yeah. So he was, he was one of your earliest Investors. He was the first one. He invested after camp. He into com- the GP committed. though, into the company, not right. as an investor investor. That too. So after camp, he committed to being the first investor in the, at the time, non-existent fund. Mm-hmm. And then a while later is when I found out I would have to launch the fund myself instead mm-hmm. of just you know licensing the index. And that's when he became a GP, an uh, LP investor. So who else, uh, when you say you have to launch the fund yourself, Aren't you running this with another group that helps manage? Yeah, so my initial plan after I had the index, and this is when I met him and you at Camp Kotak and there wasn't a fund yet, um, was to license the index to like iShares or Vanguard or someone. Um, I talked to iShares, they didn't want it. I talked to everyone and no one wanted it. So eventually I just had to launch it on my own. Um, and that's when I said, okay, I'll need to raise funds because the operating costs for an ETF are yeah, no, it's steep. not insubstantial. It's it's between legal and compliance and regulatory filings, and you know, it's a quarter million to a half a million dollars. Easily. Well, in addition to that, in emerging markets, we actually give you access to local shares on local exchanges. So we pay the custody costs of giving you that access to give you that market um, exposure. And that's one of the things I'm very proud of and very proud to pay on behalf of my clients. So um, so that that's even more expensive for emerging markets. Sure. So we had to raise funds for that. And I ended up, you know, as you know, working with 
ETF Architect. Prior, they were called Elf Architect at the time and being right. their first white label client. Wes Gray and, yeah. and the whole crew over there. They're, they're, they're actually a really good group of guys yes. and smart as can be. You did introduce me to Wes Gray, as I recall. Yeah, uh, you were I think the first so. one too. Oh, yes. so, all right. Listen, I'm not looking for a, a, a commission on any of this. Okay. It was just, I, I find Wes's stuff to be fascinating. He's an interesting guy, a Marine captain yes. slash quant, just such an unusual background. Yeah. You know, and, and they do really good work. I didn't realize they changed their name from Alpha Architect. To ETF no, they didn't change their name. They have they separated the entities. Oh, so you have yeah. ETF Architect as one group. That makes sense, yeah. and then Alpha Architect as a uh, as another group. Well, say say hello to Wes for me. Um, I really like him and his crew. So we went over twenty seven countries down to eighteen, down to ten or eleven, um, and ten most liquid companies within each uh, within each country. Uh, how about rebalancing? How do you go about over the course of the year, keeping things in, in line with the original balancing, and then how often do you make changes in the index? Yeah, so we rebalance once a year because the human rights data comes out once a year. So the, the personal and economic freedom data. Um, and it comes out around the end of the year, so we rebalance the third Friday in January. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we leave it until the next year. If something happens in between, we don't respond to it immediately. We have to wait till rebalance. Um, there is a rule that uh, if 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 country falls more than five points on one of our scales, that we do kick it out, even if it's already in the index. But we do that at rebalance time. So there is a, a basically it's a freedom decline momentum rule, and the reason why we do that is we found that freedom when it increases it does so gradually. And when it decreases, it does so very quickly. Right. And so we don't wanna be catching that falling knife, uh, so to speak. Uh, the only country that's ever triggered that it was Turkey, and yep. that was before the ETF existed, it was when it was just the index, and that was in 2018 rebalance. Um, and it was because they fell more than five points on the previous year's scales, and they never made it back into the index since. So hypothetically, if uh, pre-Erdogan Turkey is in your holdings, Mm -hmm. and then someone comes in who's an autocrat, who removes uh, democratic um, election rules and and imprisons his political opponents, they could end up staying in the index for the balance of the year? Or if it plummets that 5%, you kick them right out? They would end up staying in there until the rebalance time. The next year, so. And and part of that is, yeah, there is a lag in there, but um, we found that these types of political changes do take time to show up in markets. So it doesn't happen immediately. If you if notice, elections are very often mispriced for sure. this reason. Um, it takes a couple years for these things to show up. We, uh, I do the freedom meetings with our econometricians at the think tanks every year. And one year um, I was there with the Polish uh, delegate from the Polish think tank that works with our Freedom guys, and um, and this was right before the PIS government got into power, if you'll recall. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, okay, we're we're about to elect this ultra right wing kind of crazy government, and they're going to have constitutional majority probably, um, but it won't show up in the markets for a couple of years. And it happened just as he said. Poland was still the best performing market in 2017. Wow. In 2018, they fell to number four from number one in our index, um, and they've stayed basically in the middle since. Um, but now, you know, they're taking a lot of steps to support Ukraine in their in their stand for freedom. 
So mm-hmm. I'm glad they're in there. I'm glad they're one of the top four. Um, but they did show that decline, but not until a few years after that government came into power. Because what happens is our data providers, they look at what's actually happening on the ground. They don't just look at, okay, what we expect to happen. They're not trying to predict the future. Um, we're not trying to predict what countries are gonna have the best freedom momentum upwards. Um, we catch it on the downwards, but not upwards, because we can't predict the future. If we were to do that, we would have invested in Argentina a few years ago. Right. Um, or some of the worst countries, because they have the best kind of um, trajectory, like expected improvement possibilities. Um, so we don't do that. We take the absolute freedom level at the time of measurement um, relative to their peers. And there's no, you know, there's no 100% free market and there's no 100% unfree market. Um, it's all a gray zone. And so it's just relative to your peers. Mm. You know, when we just take the freest countries, all of these countries have problems. Even the developed markets, even the United States, we're not 100% free here, obviously. So. All countries have their issues, um, and we just try to pick the ones that have the strongest institutions, best rule of law, um, best individual and investor protections, private property rights, intellectual property rights, things like that, and just make sure we're giving our our investors the you know exposures that are the freest of that universe. Let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in China and in Russia, starting with China began cracking down on some of its tech leaders and technology companies a couple of years ago. And it was really surprising to see a government really start bashing their own economic leaders. When you're looking at that from a distance, you have to be thinking, well, I'm glad I don't have these guys in my index. You know what? It's it's a bittersweet thing because, yeah, it's it's uh, it's good that we didn't have them in there. But it's a terrible thing what's happening because, you, you know, being from China, I want China to, to succeed. I want them to be free um, eventually. And, I, I you know, a lot of people like my, myself years ago thought that we were on that trajectory because China increased in their freedom levels a lot. Um, in the last couple of decades. You know, they went from abysmal policies under Mao Mm -hmm. to not so bad policies. They opened up economically and, um, you know, had great success there. And their GDP grew tremendously. And that was very real growth. People lifting themselves up out of poverty um, and very powerful um, growth story of the, but now growth story of the past, um, because they are. Why do you say that growth story of the past? You don't think there's a lot of growth ahead for exactly China? what you just mentioned. So you know, their their star sectors like tech are were be, are now being cracked down on. Um, Xi Jinping has consolidated power and is continuing to um, dictator for life, right? Yeah, there's emperor for life, and uh, and yeah, there's no room for any dissent. You saw what happened in Hong Kong, just the just the idea of any dissent. Um, uh, what about Jack Ma, and you look at all the companies he's affiliated yep, with? so it all started with Ant Financial, when that right. was scrapped, and then Jack Ma disappeared after he said something that uh, wasn't kosher, and uh, uh, criticized, you know, just, you know, it, it was actually very, I think, benign what he yeah. said. Um, but he, he criticized the government, basically, the way they handled the financial sector. And, you know, here in the United States, we do that every day. Look at us on Twitter. Right. I mean, Constantly. yeah. And so, so th- the fact that, that even that was enough to, you know, basically disappear him, um, him being a very visible persona in the He's space. He's the Elon Musk of China, exactly. isn't he? And, you know, just just a very character, uh, charismatic uh, and well-loved, uh, well-looked-up-to guy. And, uh, you know, when he disappeared, I think a lot of people realized, wow, if, if they could disappear your founder, um, 
you know, you might have some risks there that we didn't <laughs> account for. Um, and then following that, all the other tech leaders started, the CEO started stepping down or um, pledging a ton of money for common prosperity, which is one of their you know new initiatives. And uh, that, you know, that money came from shareholder pockets. Right. And it's basically a bribe. It's not going to common prosperity. Uh, it's just to keep the government happy. And wow. so every company in China now is required to have a communist cell member in you know as part of their their company um, all the funds are now required to have um, communist leader uh, kind of uh, it's like the old mob bosses with overseeing them. hey yes. uh, hey Freddie's gonna show up and he's gonna make sure everything's done right it does have that feel to it right and so so this is very scary actually for someone who I mean I, I root for China I want them to succeed I, I you know I thought they were gonna be much more successful at this point. Um, but the, that's, you know, the one problem is they're reversing these policies and going back to very uh, unfree, even economically policies. Um, the, the other problem is the demographics. Mm-hmm. So the one child policy. For a long time, right? By the way, there is um, there is a, a lot of um, literature and analysis and even books written about how China effectuated the one-child policy. Yeah, so the one-child policy led to 30 million missing women in China. That's amazing. That's, that's uh, official Chinese think tank estimates. Some others have it as even more, more than twice that. Right. Um, and this is a hard issue for me because when I went to China, um, and I, as I mentioned, I traveled to Shanghai, to Beijing. Um, I was 23 at the time, and I, yeah, I had a friend in Shanghai, her name was Maggie. She was the exact same age as me, just like all of my American friends in every way, um, except she didn't exist on paper. She was one of what's called black children who um, went to school under a fake surname. Because she was a second child? She was a second child. Wow. And her parents chose to, to to register her brother for existence, basically. So, wow. um, so no school records, no hospital records, no... Um, no state benefits. So it was basically, you know, everything else. And and that's when I realized, wow, that could have been me. She was the exact same as me in every other way. And so, um, so that, that affected me in a profound way. And also this policy affected our generation in a profound way. Not only are there 30 million missing women, there's 30 million men who had no prospect of getting married or finding a wife. And what do you do when you have no prospect of ever, you know, having a family, join the military, right. and so that led to a huge military buildup in China as well. And so, um, this is a policy that made me realize: okay, so policies matter, governance matters, um, and these types of things have a, a huge impact on the future of a country and a society and an economy. Um, and so, that's actually what led me to start exploring these relationships between so, freedom and markets. So it's funny you said governance matters. I was discussing when we finally managed to book you for the for the podcast, I was discussing this with, I won't mention their name, but we both know them. And they said, well, how is what China is doing to their tech sector any different than what Trump did after he got elected? And I always find it weird when I'm in a position of having to defend President Trump, it's like, hey, <laughs> you can't compare obnoxious tweets trashing a company with actual government policies that force companies to pay a corrupt tax, have people added to their boards by force, disregard the rule of law, sanctity of contracts, sanctity of private property. 
as as crazy as the Trump era was, it was a lot of noise, at least until January 6th. But I mean, yeah. during the Trump administration, it was more noise than actual policies such as we've seen in China. Yeah, I think there's a, a few differences there. Now, for, first, I, I don't know who you're talking about, actually, but <laughs> but I want to say they have a point in that every country has these issues, and it's just a d- different degrees, right? So we may have had it, you know, we have regulations that affect how our companies operate here, Trump or no Trump, and there's a certain degree of government interference in private markets everywhere. Um, so, so it does happen everywhere. We, you know, we happen to be one of the least worst, I think, in the United States. Um, and in China, yeah, it's very different. Uh, one reason is you can't push back against it. So here you see any kind of policy going into place that people don't like. There's a huge amount of pushback. Yeah, look at all the protests post-Supreme Court yep. overturning Roe v. Wade. If that people had take happened, to the streets. You can't do that in China. If that happened in China, do you think people could protest the one-child policy in China? Uh, no. Do you think they could protest when it went to two child and they're like, well, why did you make me only have one child? You know, and when it went to three child? No, nobody could protest that. In fact, it would you would be prosecuted for protesting. You would be disappeared. So I can't launch a fund like this in Hong Kong. I mean, I would be arrested because of national security law. So, so wow. the, the institutions in place right, are important for pushing back, for checks and balances. There has to be a plurality of political parties. There has to be a system of checks and balances, uh, independent judiciary. Um, there has to be a you know, uh, free media as a force to keep government accountable. And so these are all things that we find in freer markets that we don't see in the less free ones. So you can have a crazy person in charge, but if you have stronger institutions, if you have some checks and balances, free press, that keeps you know, power um, from getting out of hand. So, so let's talk just for a moment about Russia. Obviously, they've become an anathema given the invasion of Ukraine. But even before that, you didn't have Russia in um, the ETF. Tell us the reasons why a country like a Putin-led Russia just doesn't make it into a freedom index. Well, their their freedom score from the think tanks was too low, and that's why I didn't- How low is too low? So you have to be higher than your peers, and mm-hmm. our algorithm assigns positive and negative weights. The right. negative weights are excluded, so they were- How very, low were they is what I'm really getting to. So Russia ranks a 6.23 out of 10. Right. Um, as a comparison, Kuwait is 6.34, India is 6.39, um, and then you get into included countries, Philippines, 6.83, Thailand, 6.89, and so forth. These are the kind of borderline countries. India is borderline, sometimes it's included, really? sometimes Give it's us not. A, yep. Who are the top three and the bottom three? So top three in emerging markets are Taiwan, top one, um, Chile, and South Korea currently. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. 
With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So South Korea and Taiwan, kind of really no longer emerging markets, right? Right, but you could say the same about China. Right, I mean, okay, well, that makes sense. And who are the bottom three, I can imagine? Yeah, so bottom three in emerging markets, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and China. Saudi Arabia, wow. Saudi Arabia ranks actually lower than China on the overall score, it's 5.12. China is 5.57, so 155 and 150 rank out of 162 countries in the world. So it turns out that taking a bone saw to a journalist (laughs) and making him disappear isn't good for your freedom index. No. They also have some women's freedom issues. Um, Hey, they can drive now, right? I mean, they can't show their face, but... In these kinds of markets, in the unfree markets, you have to watch rhetoric versus what actually happens on the ground. Right. Um, A lot of these um, reforms that MBS put into place, there was a lot of hope in that country for MBS to reform. And, you know, because... We had a lot of hope about Egypt in the Arab Spring also before that all went to hell. And then, you know, women were allowed to drive all of a sudden, but... At the same time that the women were allowed to drive, they put four uh, women who had campaigned for women to drive in jail. One of them just was released. Some of them are still in jail. My friend uh, Manal Al Sharif, who uh, is has been jailed for you know um, campaigning for women to drive in the past and is now exiled in Australia. She did a poll. Women, you know, dri- you know women to drive movement here in the United States at that time to protest those women being in jail. So in these countries, you have to be very careful. There's always rhetoric and there's always a big PR push to make them seem like they're reforming when actually perhaps on the ground, 
there's less of that going on in reality. Huh, really quite fascinating. We mentioned that you're now a five-star Morningstar Funds, but when you were first rolled out in 2019, the index was voted best new international global ETF and index. Uh, what made people so excited about this theme back in 2019? Yeah, you know, that was a very uh, a proud moment for us because that was voted by um, investors. People in the ETF industry. And people in the industry, yeah. yeah. So first, you know, investors would put in their kind of nominations and then a panel of judges of ETF experts um, would vote. And so so I'm, I'm very honored to have to have that uh, those awards, but I think what it was is that um, intuitively investors just understand that you know freer countries have more sustainable growth. They recover faster from drawdowns. They use their capital more efficiently, whether it's person, human, or economic capital. So you know, capital goes where it's welcomed and where it's well treated, and that's Walter Riston quote. Right, um, that's and a great capital quote. is not just money; it's also people and ideas. And you look at the capital outflows coming from Russia right now, coming from Hong Kong, um, the millionaire exodus. There's, I believe, more millionaires per capita coming out of Hong Kong than anywhere else at this point. Um, and I think that just speaks to um, the the growth potential of the freer markets um, to be the the launch pads for growth in the next decade. So especially in emerging markets where they're coming from this very low base. So I think in emerging markets, because there is such a high concentration, when we launched, I think China weight was about 40% in most emerging markets. Right, it's giant. Russia and Saudi Arabia were in there. Right now, Russia's out. China's down to like 33%. Uh, but it's still, you know, kind of a high concentration. Saudi Arabia is still in the top ten. You still have Turkey, Egypt, and all of these others. Um, so, so there's just a high concentration of these autocracies. And I think people were at the time saying, finally, there's a way to invest in emerging markets without funding autocracies. Right. So it, it it's not even EMX China. It's EMX dictatorships. You're just not participating in the right. worst. It's very different from EMX China. So X China just axes China out, out right. of a market cap weighted index. It's not anything else. It, it just, it, there is, it's just like an arbitrary exclusion. And I think that's a band-aid on a much deeper problem. And it doesn't address the root issue, which is the lack of freedom is the problem in China, not China itself. So so you hinted at something with Hong Kong, and I'm, I'm curious if you pay attention or track this in any way. You mentioned the exodus of millionaires from Hong Kong. I wonder what sort of brain drain takes place in places like Hong Kong or China or Russia when the country just takes a really bad turn in the wrong direction and people finally say, all right, no mas, uh, I'm out. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a pretty high level of brain drain. I think without capital controls, it would be even higher. So mm -hmm. these countries have those capital controls for a reason. And how do you get capital out of um, countries like China or Hong Kong other than buying condos in Vancouver? It's very difficult. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I was always amazed anytime I visited Vancouver about the see-through apartment buildings, which yeah. was, you know, 75, 80% uh, apartments owned by people in China, and it was sort of yeah. their safety nets. And other countries, not just. And you notice Vancouver. all the autocrats—they send their children to school in London, the freer countries sure, and so forth. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Why? Why is that? They're not confident in their own education systems. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so, so you wrote something I thought was kind of interesting 
uh, and I want to get some feedback on it. BRICS are a good example of a nonsensical EM grouping made up by Wall Street, now used by autocracies as a dog whistle for forming alliances against the free world. Explain that. Yeah, so that was uh, prompted by a tweet um, that I saw that said, Iran now wants to join the BRICS, right? So BRICS was coined by a, an economist at Goldman Sachs, right. um, like 2001 or, or something. Maybe um, even longer before that, right? Okay. Brazil, so, Russia, India, China. South Africa was added later. Oh, really? Yeah, but but you know mostly Brazil, Russia, India, China. And um, so they coined that phrase, you know, grouping these countries, but there's nothing in common among among these countries, except they're all emerging markets, so they're all coming from a low base. So it really made no sense, except that it made an acronym. And Wall Street, I think, sometimes doesn't realize or consciously denies its own powers. And you know, we created that acronym, and then the these countries started something called the BRICS Summit. Right. So now they're a summit, so kind of a competition to the G7 and so forth. And now Iran wants to join. And so, <laughs> so Jim O'Neill of Goldman Sachs is the guy who uh, who coined that. OK, I'm, I'm not trying to call him out or anything. I'm just saying in in on Wall Street, we sometimes deny our own power and we create these things meaninglessly just to sell product. And then the the acronym gets hijacked by autocrats to create alliances against the free world. And so sometimes that's a good example, kind of a visualization of what happens when we invest in these unfree markets as well. We lower the cost of capital for these companies in these markets to do business. There is a cost to doing business in a way that puts state interests first. Every company in China has to do that. I'm using China as an example, but the same thing in Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt. I mean, you see expropriation in all these countries. Um, and the state interests always come first. So that comes before your shareholders, before yourselves, before your customers. Um, and there's a cost of doing business that way. And we are subsidizing that cost by investing in these places, in these in these. Com companies and also these companies typically have very poor accounting standards, very poor transparency. We don't know who the actual owners are, and so you could directly be enriching autocrats and their cronies um, because we don't know the ownership of a right. lot of these companies. As long as the the regulators are getting their uh, little payoff on the side, what yeah. do they care if the accounting is right? As long as their numbers add and, up. And, and we have ourselves to blame for that. It's our regulators that allowed this, our lawyers who wanted to make money from this, our investment bankers, and our, you know, Wall Street, us. So we have a lot to be responsible for here. And I think sometimes Wall Street, you know, carelessly makes these things up like bricks. Okay, what is that? You know, it doesn't make any sense. And I think, you know, now, now people are realizing that and it's, pretty much dead as a grouping in emerging markets investing at least. But now we still have the BRICS summit and Iran wants to join. So there's a lasting consequence to our actions. When you're in a position to direct assets, whether it's your own assets or someone else's assets, that is a position of power and privilege. And we could use that power for good or not. And in emerging markets, there is no neutral. Huh, really, really interesting. I recall reading not too long ago, and it actually might have been on Twitter, that the A-share A investors, meaning the local investors in China, get treated very different than the B-share investors. And if you were a B-share investor in China since 1990, 
you haven't done that well, whereas the A-share investors did pretty good. Yeah, so the MCHI index, which is the MSCI China index, tracks both onshore and offshore shares, very complete picture of investing in China. Um, Since its inception in 1992, it has had lower than treasury-like returns. So lower than- For the B share, the outside investors. For both onshore and offshore. Oh, really? Yeah, together. So Wait, all 30 investors. years of the gr- biggest growth spurt of any country yep. on, a, on an extended basis, and it didn't be treasuries? Correct. It's abysmal. And, and now, why is that? Is that because so much skim was taken off the top for the local? There's a lot of dilution. There's expropriation. There's Expropriation, define that. So expropriation, I define that as um, basically money. Nice, nice business you got there. Shame yeah. if something happened to it. <laughs> yeah. So, so government, you know, for example, in Egypt, there was uh, the, the, the largest dairy company. The government wanted to take it over. The founder said no. He was put in prison. His son said no, was also put in prison with him. Wow. So this happens in all these unfree markets. It's not just China. Um, I know I pick on China a lot or seem to because they're just such a great example. They're exhibit A for all of this stuff right now. Right. So so yeah, that you know, that happens in all of these countries. In China specifically, you see this major drag on emerging markets indexes as a whole because they have such a large allocation. And so emerging markets as a whole hasn't done that well in the last decade or, or more. So, so, so that leads to the opposite question. If investing in these autocracies and unfree countries help some of the worst leaders in the world, what is the positive for investing in the freer countries uh, that respect economic freedom and, and individual liberty? Yeah, so, so freer countries have a lot of benefits that are beyond even economic benefits. They have higher life expectancies. They have lower infant mortality. They have lower gender inequality or higher gender equality. They have higher GDP growth, higher income per capita, lower poverty rates. Even their poorest quarter of their incomes are much wealthier in the the top quartile freest countries than the bottom quartile of you know the least free countries. So wow. the bottom, the poorest people in the freer countries are much better off just by being in a freer country. Um, so, so all of these benefits of freedom are kind of nebulous. They're hard to visualize. And what we try to do with the FRDM index is to be a scorecard, a running scorecard for freedom in the emerging markets. Because yeah, there are a lot of benefits investment-wise. They, you know, these are the countries that um, have more sustainable growth, recover faster from drawdowns. We saw this in sustainable growth, meaning. You know, there it's not government mandated debt driven growth, kind of like you saw in China again, Exhibit A. Right. You know, Evergrande. We didn't know there was a problem until it was too late, and that's you know, you know one of the problems with this kind of growth is that the lack of transparency, um, the debt driven nature of it, um, and it just causes problems that become too big to fix. So since you launched the Freedom Index, have you been back to China? I have not. Or Hong Kong for that No, matter? not even Hong Kong. And I love Hong Kong so much and I wish I could go back, but huh. because of the national security law, uh, it's best that I don't. <laughs> you, you, you actually are concerned that if you show up as the founder of this index in Hong Kong or China, you could be arrested. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to test that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So then, let me ask you a, a subtler question: Do you ever get pushback from countries that are left out of the index? You hear from different players. Yes, yes I do, and and that's always interesting because um, 
And I had to get used to that because, you know, working at Fidelity, a very conservative corporate culture. Sure. Button um, down. Yeah, yes. Sure. We never really had anything to be criticized about. And if you didn't like something I, you know, suggested, you know, you blamed Yuri and Tim or whoever I was getting my research from, right? Um, so so that's- Who, by the way, has a great Twitter feed. He really does. It's really the most interesting of all of Fidelity, I have to say. <laughs> so, but so, anyway, yeah. pushback. Who, who's pushback on you? So it's interesting because I've heard pushback from multiple countries, but the pushback is different depending on the country it's coming from. I've noticed that from Chinese investors in Hong Kong, I get very virulent pushback, like very um, angry and... Um, hey, you know, you don't, you don't, the data set you work off of comes from Fraser and Cato. Yeah, exactly. It's I'm not, not my data set. I just am massaging I, what numbers I get from them. I'm not even massaging the numbers. I'm literally just putting the numbers as inputs into my Ranking algorithm. Ranking them, right. Yeah, and my algorithm is coming out with the um, inclusions. And so from China, I get a lot of pushback in a less civil way, but you know, there's, there's still, some of them make good points and I've taken some of that to, to heart and, and changed parts of our index. So one of the things that I really valued from that feedback in the very beginning is that somebody pointed out, hey, you have a South African company, Naspers, which is all of the, their entire market cap consists of Tencent. And so you're essentially in Oh, is that true? That's yes. interesting. This is a quantitative strategy. If, if the company is based in South Africa, and South Africa's included. But it's really a Chinese right. holding so, company. So we actually, at the rebalance of that following year, made a rule Out. that if more than 80% of your assets are made up of the shares of another company, then, and that company is in an excluded country, then you're out. And so, so they really, you know, Regardless of who the messenger is, the message was helpful. Hmm, and interesting. In, but what I found is that in the more free or the you know borderline countries that sometimes get included, sometimes don't. I was in New York a few years ago when Brazil was not included in the fund, mm -hmm. and I was in a subway and I ran into a couple of Brazilian um, human rights lawyers, and so we were all waiting for the same like late train, and um, and I found out they worked in human rights, and I was there for a human rights event, and so we started talking, and they were like, "Hey, is Brazil in your index?" And I was like, "No," and they were like, "Yeah, that sounds about right." <laughs> <laughs> so I think countries, you know, different people from different countries tend to react differently to not being included. Um, India, right? I have a lot of Indian. Um, we have a lot of Indian fans, actually, because, you know, India tends to have a lot of fights with China. So so they like that we don't have China. Sure. But we also now don't have India. And because India, a couple of years ago, um, it increased their repression of the, the Kashmir peoples. They had increased um, incidences of government intervention in media. And they blacked out protests in places that had... Um, or blacked out the internet in places that were going to have protests, the farmers' protests. Huh. And so because of that, their score dropped. And because their score dropped, they became excluded. And, and uh, they dropped lower than Brazil, and Brazil got bumped up. So it's all relative, right? So um, after that happened, I didn't hear much. But when I do you know, personal speaking in, in person, um, I do hear from... Indian, you know, audience members that say, "Hey, India should really be in there," you know, and they give me all these reasons, and I'm like, "I completely agree with you. I love India." You know, unfortunately, my <laughs> subjective opinion doesn't matter at all; it doesn't factor in at all. But you know, it is a borderline country, and it could make it back in at any time. You know, for a long time, it looked like Brazil was really going to be a very modern, democratic, industrialized nation, 
But like so many other countries in South America, they seem to have, you know, faltered, uh, stumbled a little bit. Of all the countries that are right in that borderline zone, what do you think are the ones most likely to end up back in the index over the next couple of years? I do think India is very likely to make Mm -hmm. it back in there. They have some issues, um, but I think they have enough diversity of viewpoints to kind of push back and and push through, um, I hope. And they have very favorable or more favorable demographics than some other countries. Um, So I think they they can possibly make it back in. I think uh, Malaysia is currently in, and it's one of those that I think will stay in. They're making some, you know, reform progress. Colombia is an interesting one that I thought was going to become more like more likely to come in, but now they're having some issues. Um, and the reason I liked Colombia is because they they were benefiting from the human migration from Venezuela. Right. And I like these countries that are in places where um, they're next to a very unfree market and they're like the, the beacon of freedom in their region, you know, mm-hmm. like Taiwan or um, Colombia or in this, you know, right now, Poland. Where, where does Mexico Poland. fit into the uh, it's, ranking? It's low, but it's included. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, these are the interesting countries. And what I find even more interesting that we don't currently, you know, have a product for is frontier markets. There are some very free frontier markets. Estonia. Give us some examples. Estonia. Estonia sure. Yeah, it's like... You, Freer than the U.S. on the rankings, huh. much higher. It's like a number five. U.S. is like number fifteen. Wow! So, and that's a and that was know, before last week. Yeah, and, and they would be they would be very offended to be called a, a frontier market. But I'm just talking about size and give, and give me some other frontier markets. Who else? Uruguay, is? which is uh-huh. actually not even classified as frontier, I believe, by MSCI. It's not you know, not even classified. Um, it's it's you know got some very interesting fintech companies and just it's ranked very free mm-hmm. so how about any countries in africa that are on the border uh you know what i don't know of any offhand in africa that are on the border nigeria i was about to say zaire and nigeria where are they in your in your rankings so nigeria actually is 6.28 out of 10 uh-huh. Um, which is higher than, you know, Russia, Qatar, UAE, which are emerging markets, but it's not higher than, you know, India and so forth. So, so yeah, it's still not free enough. If, if we were to make a frontier market index, it still would not be free enough to be in there. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. 
quietly yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So here's the question. Are there enough large liquid companies in all the frontier markets to create an index? Right now, we think the answer to that is no. Mm -hmm. But But eventually, it might be. Yeah. And there's other ways of solving that problem, possibly. Um, So if any listeners are market makers or if you want to help us make a market in some of these names, please get in touch because we would love to solve this problem and make something like an ETF that's available for all investors. Obviously, we can make a you know, hedge fund or something, but I would much prefer to have an ETF structure. So, so, so last question before I get to my favorite questions. Okay. You mentioned you miss Hong Kong a lot. <laughs> what do you miss most about Hong Kong? Okay, so Hong Kong was like New York on speed times 100. I, I've, New York on steroids is how everybody describes Hong Kong. Really? Yeah, New okay. York on steroids. Just like New York times 10. Just like yeah. massive. Yeah, I loved that about it. It's just the speed and the size, the number, the sheer number of people, the possibility of um, everything you can do there, the... the um, the respect for commerce, the efficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just such an exciting place that the lights, I mean, the, the, if you look at the city at night, it's beautiful. It's well, got world-class, you know. Everything. Everything. Right? Uh, and it's what got, are your favorite foods in Hong Kong? So that's a very difficult question because there's a lot of good food in Hong Kong. I know, it's that's like, why I'm asking. It's like <laughs> New York. There was a, you know, I don't even remember all the names. There was a uh, tapas place in Mid-Levels, which I loved. There was a Indian place with the most incredible naan um, on the peak that I loved. But I think if I had to pick one, I'm, I really miss going to this place called Trewa. And it was, it's basically like a, IHOP. Like it's an open 24 hours and it's the one we went to was in Central, which I think it's actually closed now due to COVID. But um, that's where you go at night if you stayed up too late with your friends and stayed out and you just want to go and eat. Uh, I just had the best memories there. I just remember, you know, hanging out with friends there, you know, in, in early morning hours. I'm a night person having the best time. And so that's actually what I miss the most, which that- is which is like the cheapest 
uh, like restaurant you could think of there, but it's it's where I had the best memories. So in New York, that would be Wohops down in Chinatown. That was open okay. 24 <laughs> hours a day. Yeah. I remember in college, me and buddies piling into it's like there you're at after, three in the morning. Yes, that's the and place. And I, I think they're still around and still open 24 hours a day. Yeah. It's just, it's just nonstop. I don't even remember the food. I think the food was like secondary. It was right. like some weird toast, um, you know, and tea or something, but... But yeah, no, it was it was the best memories. All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, what have you been streaming during lockdown? Tell us what's been keeping you, know you entertained. I saw Hobbs and Shaw the other day, and I was like, I have missed so many Fast and Furious movies. And so <laughs> I started from the beginning. Oh, really? And now I'm on, I just I just finished six. And so, I because I, I stopped going to those movies after college. And the last one I saw was Tokyo Drift. And I have no memory of, you know, pre like 2004. So I basically had to watch them all over again. Were, were you a drift girl? Were you out in 240ZXs going sideways <laughs> around tracks? No, that's, I, I that's see more you. you. No, that's you. No, I, I didn't actually. No, that's Drive? Because <laughs> I, I know people who still to, to this day do that. No, I did not. I was not part of that. <laughs> it, it's a funny run of films because it's about this tiny little subculture. Yes. And they blow it up as if it's like, the only thing that yes. really matters. And but what I love about that is some of these quotes that they have, and I love like uh, badass women characters. Uh-huh. So like Letty in the latest one said something like, you know, that after she lost all her memory and she was like, you know what, I may not remember much, but I know one thing, no one would have ever made me any, made me do anything I didn't want to do. Because somebody else was, you know, blaming themselves for the trouble that she got into. And she was like, mm-hmm. no, I wouldn't have done that if I didn't want to do it. And so I love that. And I love how um, in... Tokyo Drift, Han was like, I have money. I need trust and character around me. It's like all of these little quotes that, and <laughs> just the sense of loyalty. And I just, I just love the brotherhood about the movie. The, the philosophy of Fast and Furious. Who knew yes. that was a thing? <laughs> um, second question. Tell us about your mentors who helped to shape your career. I mean, you hear the, the quote that um, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room, right? And I can, I can say in this business, I have never been in the wrong room. In fact, I'm usually in the most right room possible. So I think it'd be harder to, to answer that question as who, who's not been a mentor at this point, because I have so many mentors. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many times have I called you and asked questions? Right? Sure. What should I do about this? Um, all my you know, ETF brethren who ha- have their own products, right? I talk to them, I ask them questions all the time. Um, Wes is a current mentor. Early on, um, you know, looking at people like Rob, who pioneered non-cap weighted indexing. Um, Rob or not of yeah. Research Affiliates. Rob or not, and you know, before that, when I was at Fidelity, my fellow advisors and my clients, right? So my clients, I learned so much from them. I usually now don't get to meet with end clients very much. Mm-hmm. I usually talk to only advisors. You asked earlier who most of our investors are, and I didn't fully answer that. It's advisors. And, um, you know, I recently got to meet face-to-face a family office and that was a fascinating experience. And just these people were so um, kind and generous with their time and, um, you know, learning about the strategy and, you know, um, and, you know, sharing with me about their family. And, and you know, I, I get my inspiration from these people. These are the people that we created the strategy for. And 
Um, you know, these are the people that whose feedback I listen to, right? People who tell me this is what we want to see next, or um, when advisors tell me, "Oh my gosh, you should hear how our you know our clients respond when we the joy and the relief from our clients when we tell them how we invested for them after the Russia invasion mm-hmm. that we had them in this freedom weighted product." Um, those types of comments are are why I'm in this, and and they inspire me. Hmm. Really interesting. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites, and what are you reading right now? So right now, I'm actually reading um, the book about Bogle, um, the Bogle. Eric Balchunas's book. Yes. Yep. Um, it's I'm fun. about three quarters of the way through that. How are you enjoying it? I'm enjoying it very much. I'm probably uh, on. Chapter three. Um, <laughs> so. it, I was I was aghast reading it, and I, I'm reading this quote, and I'm nodding my head in agreement yeah. with it. And then I realized, oh, I know why I'm in agreement with that. It's because it's you. <laughs> it was it was pretty like, oh my god, talk about confirmation bias. That was embarrassing. <laughs> no, I love how he put so many of our friends in there, and just like so many quotes. Um, it's like reading a book of, with all of your friends' quotes in there. So I love that. Um, it's so good so far. And he told the me- The Bogle effect yes. is the name of it. And he said, you know, you should read this book because, you know, you, you will be inspired by how Jack Bogle also went against the grain. And so um, so I, I love it so far. Um, the other book that, you know, I'm a big fan of Bill Browder and mm-hmm. what he's doing. Also, Red his, Notice. His and uh, You've read Red Notice? Uh, what's the? I read the first one. What's yeah, the second one? Yeah, that's Red Notice. One? Second what's, one's Freezing Order. All right, I just got that. I haven't read it yet. It's in That's my next one. Yeah, yeah. in the queue. So, um, so that's that's going to be exciting. I think um, I heard that it has a happy ending, and I love happy endings. And you, you, don't, you don't think of these stories as ones that would have happy endings, but I'm looking forward to seeing what that is. R- Red Notice is astonishing. Yes. I mean, you read it and like... If that was fiction, it wouldn't be believable. Right. Right? It, like, it has to be nonfiction because if it was a novel, you would say, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever read. Yeah. But when you know it, it actually happened, you're like, holy, it, it's really <laughs> astonishing. So yeah. you may Eric, mentioned Eric Belchunas. We have him coming on the show in a few months. And um, Bill Browder coming on the show in a few really? months. Really? Yeah. So we've, we have- That's amazing. We have both of your books teed up for-, <laughs> for uh, for uh, I love having authors over the summer. It's a perfect time. It gives me an opportunity to sit on the beach, read a yeah. book, and I have I get to pretend I'm working. What'd you yes. do? Oh, I worked all day Sunday. Really? What'd you do? I sat on the, <laughs> I sat on the beach and read Bogle effects. Yeah, and and that's my uh, no. Work. Ask uh, Ask Bill Browder how he. Um thinks about emerging markets investing. And he does, he does tell you he doesn't do it because of the lack of rule of law. Yeah, that makes yeah. perfect sense to yeah. me. Um, so I obviously disagree with that. You should still do it because there are some very free markets in the emerging markets, but I agree with his reasoning. So, yeah. so my wife's brother used to be general counsel of Amico like 20 years ago. That little Amico BP deal, that was his thing. Oh, wow. And he was never a fan of investing in Russia because he always described them, um, he always described them as a criminal enterprise with a standing army attached to it. (laughs) And that was 25 years ago. And he turned out to be very, very right. He said every time he ever went to Russia to do any sort of contract or deal, the terms always changed. Even after you had to sign agreement, it didn't matter. There was no respect for contracts, forget private property or individual rights. Just whatever they could get away with, they could get away with. And yeah. not a surprise, they didn't make it onto your list. 
No, that rule of law is so important. And, and Russia is one of those countries. I had a client when I was at Fidelity, a Russian client who told me I don't want to invest in Russia because it's like funding terrorism. And wow. you see how prescient that was now. Wow. But Russia is one of those countries that has both poor personal freedom and poor economic freedom. So, you know, personal freedom, I categorize into civil and political freedom. Civil freedoms are things like terrorism, trafficking, torture, disappearances, um, women's freedoms. There's mm-hmm. five women's freedoms proxies. And then um, in, and these are, these are emerging markets, women's freedoms, like women's rights to movement, women's rights to children after divorce, women's um, rights to inheritance, things like that. Um, and then you have your political freedoms, like due process, rule of law, um, civil procedure, criminal procedure. And then you have and, you know, freedom of speech, media, expression, and so forth. And then you have your economic freedoms that we're all familiar with. Uh, freedom to trade internationally, sound money, right? Fear countries actually have more sound monetary policies and lower inflation rates historically, looking at inflation as a major risk going hmm. forward. Um, business regulations, taxation, um, government interference in private markets and so forth. So Russia is one of those countries that rules, you know, ranks poorly on both Just about every both one of those bullet points. and economic. Yeah, so yeah. Um, those, you know, China is another similar situation. So yeah, that's a, a country that we, we never had in the index. All right, and our final two questions, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either ETFs, investing, or emerging markets? Yeah, so I think a lot of college grads um, these days try to go into quant, and I think quant does have its place, but I think right now, for, for new grads, I would say look at, you know, look around you and, you know, just look at what's happening in the world and invest according to that, right? Um, and sometimes that can work just as well. Um, but for everyone, I would say one, start at a big firm like Fidelity or mm-hmm. you know, a company like Bloomberg where you can learn a lot um, and they have the resources to train you. Because we've had a lot of college grads come to us and say, can we work for you? And you know, my answer to that is I do not have the resources to train right. someone just straight out of college um, as a startup, right? So um, I would much rather hire them after they've got that training. And you know, don't stay forever, do what you're passionate about, but you know, get the basic training down. And these are such great training grounds. And yeah, maybe you'll stay for a long time. I stayed for 10 years at Fidelity and I loved it. Um, and that was a, a tremendous building, you know, block and foundation for what I do now. Um, and the second thing I would say is once you do branch out, um, if you are lucky enough to have a vision or a mission or something that you're passionate about, you know, um, go for it and try to fail as big as possible. Fail, fail early and young yes. when you can recover. Yes. And so when you're young, you know, do do what you want. Go for it. And don't ask yourself, what is the most stable career path? I think a lot of people ask that these days. But um, but ask yourself, what is my ideal scenario? What do I want ideally? If I could have anything, do anything I want, what would I do? And then go that direction. Because you may fail, but, you know, you'll be happy. That's, the, that's one thing I, I learned from Yen Van Eck of uh, Van Eck Funds. Sure. Actually, early on, I heard him speak and, and somebody asked him, I have an idea for an ETF, should I launch it? And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, you may, you, you might fail, but you'll be happy. And that I can attest to that. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about both Silicon Valley and the United States compared with more traditional countries is 
failure isn't a, a red mark right. in the U.S. the way it is elsewhere. Oh, he launched the company and failed. How terrible. Here, you know, VCs and, and entrepreneurs list their failures. It's almost a badge of honor. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I know that that that's a given for folks like us, but a lot of people don't understand how significant that is. Yeah, I mean, if you're not failing, you're not trying enough. So You're not reaching out of your yeah. comfort zone. You're, you're not, not taking putting risks. Putting your whole self out there. Yeah. Absolutely. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today you wish you knew 20 years or so ago when you were first getting started? Yeah, so when I was first getting started, like 20 years ago, 20 years ago, actually, I think it's when I went to art school in Pasadena to go into advertising design. So I was wanting to go into a creative field. And what I didn't realize at that time is that finance can be very creative. And for me, indexing is a form of expression. We created this for people who believe in the benefits of freedom and want to express that in their emerging markets allocations. Before, there wasn't any way for people to express that if that's what they wanted, and now there is. So we're creating an avenue for people to express their preferences in the emerging market space. Um, and that, that's, a, that's a creative thing, you know, using data that's not readily available on Bloomberg or FactSet, instead using freedom as a metric, um, was a creative kind of outlet for me. And so this is uh, something I didn't know before, that finance and you know indexing specifically could be a creative exercise. Really quite fascinating. Thank you, Perth, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Perth Toll. She is the founder of the Freedom ETF and Liberty and Freedom Indexes. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, please check any of the previous 400 such discussions that we've done over the past eight years. You can find those at iTunes or Spotify or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps us put these conversations together each week. Justin Miller is my engineer. Paris Wald is my producer. Sean Russo is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.